The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, May 18th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Carl Rove was on Fox News Sunday, Sunday, and he offered this analysis of the firing of the State Department's inspector general. I, I want to see this thing play out, but I thought it was a quick drive-by slander. Now, there's a whole direction we could go in just on that State Department firing. We could play Trump, essentially, no, explicitly admitting that he did it on Mike Pompeo's request. Explain, sir, why you decided to fire the inspector general at the State Department. Yeah, uh, I don't know him at all. I never even heard of him, but uh, I was asked to by the State Department, by Mike. But this is actually a different kind of smoking gun that I'm after. And it was in that phrase, drive by. Rove did it again, also on Fox, in a segment today, different subject, another drive by. It is so unseemly for a former president to take the, the, the virtual commencement ceremony for a series of uh, historically black colleges and universities and turn it into a political drive-by shooting. The implicit from Sunday made explicit today. It was, in fact, a drive-by shooting. He was talking about both times, not a drive-by toilet papering or drive-by trucking. It was a shooting. And what struck me about the argument is that there we have a Republican strategist reaching for a piece of imagery, hyperbolic imagery to describe an act that, if true, we would all register as a failure of democracy for elected officials, for anyone really to engage in gunplay to advance their point of view. Institutions that should be protecting us instead being subject to gun violence. And yet when actual armed protesters amass at the Michigan State House and shut it down, that is what, a good and proper use of the political process? That state's law enforcement community interprets the law to mean that they can't disarm anyone, even in the Capitol building. And so their gunmen amassed. They went to the gallery overlooking the Senate chamber, prompting one state senator to tweet, showing a picture of guys with guns, directly above me, men with rifles yelling at us, some of my colleagues who in bulletproof vests are wearing them today. I have never appreciated our sergeant at arms more than today. Michigan lawmakers felt terrorized and, and intimidated. And so last week they canceled their legislative session out of caution, which is logical for an act and actions and circumstance that is crazy. So Karl Rove likening Barack Obama and senators who want to investigate and legislate to careless, violent criminals. Oh, that's just par for the course. And yet we have actual men with actual guns actually shutting down the functioning of government and no one's doing anything about it. So you got to ask, why does Karl Rove take a rhetorical pot shot at the imaginary when he has an example of a real thing going on right in front of him that he could decry, but chooses not to. And I would say the reason is only one of those groups is likely to literally return fire. On the show today, I spiel about the greatest mobilization since the last time we cracked open a history book. But first, Dan Heath is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which focuses on social justice entrepreneurship. 
What what Heath does there is he finds examples of institutions and individuals tackling problems in the world, and he groups these into examples, case studies, if you will, that demonstrate some phenomena. Some of his past books have included Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, and Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions in Life and Work. He is out now with his latest book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. Here's a problem. I am a somewhat crotchety interviewer. Here's his solution. Diffuse me with patience and charm. You'll see how it all works out as Dan Heath joins us up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. So many of our problems aren't even our problems. They're manifestations of the real problems, downstream manifestations, if you will. This is the subject of the new book by Dan Heath, one half of the dynamic brother duo who've written uh, the, the liner notes, tell me, books that have uh, published 3 million copies worldwide in 33 languages. I hope Basque is one of them. But Dan Heath's new book is called Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. You know, we're living in a time of one great problem. Maybe we'll get to that. Hello, Dan. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me on. I want to do a quick uh, clarification, if I can, for people for whom this this upstream uh, terminology is unfamiliar. The the origin of upstream is this parable that's well-known in public health that goes like this. I can tell it in 45 seconds. A couple of friends having a picnic beside a river. They lay out their picnic blanket. They're about to eat when they hear a shout from the direction of the river, and they look back. There's a child thrashing around in the river, apparently drowning, and so... Both of them dive in. They rescue the child, bring them to shore. They're starting to calm down when they hear a second shout. And they look back, and it's another child thrashing around on the river again, apparently drowning. So back in they go. They fish out the child, come back. Well, now it's two children. And and so begins this kind of revolving door of rescue where they're in and they're out, and it's getting exhausting. And one of the friends uh, eventually just swims to shore and starts walking away as if to leave the other one alone. And the one on the water says, hey, where are you going? I can't save all these kids by myself. And the friend walking away says, I'm going upstream to tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. And, and that's kind of the starting place for the book. So let's start tangibly with one of the problems you talk about because, and we could pick overworked nurses, we could pick graduation rates in Chicago public schools, lots of lots of examples in the book. But I'd like to talk about homelessness in Rockport, Illinois, and how that illustrates a lot of the themes of Upstream. So there's this uh, city called Rockford, as you said, it's the second biggest city in Illinois behind Chicago. And uh, a few years back, a guy named Larry Morrissey was mayor. He was in his third term, he'd served for nine years. He said when he had first taken office, he had these grandiose plans to, to combat homelessness, and he admitted in year nine he'd made essentially no progress, maybe even lost a little bit of ground. And that year, I think it was uh, 2009, his, his colleagues uh, came to him 
and said, hey, there's this, uh, there's this new initiative called Built for Zero. We want to get involved with this. It's, it's going to overhaul our approach to homelessness. And he said, ah. he admitted to being a little bit skeptical because of his own experience locally, but grudgingly he agrees to be part of this. And then 10 months later, Rockford became the first city in the U.S. to solve, to end the problem of veteran and chronic homelessness. And so an obvious question is, well, what in the hell did they do differently in those 10 months? And, and I would highlight three things that they did. Number one is they changed the system in, in the following respect, that before, the idea was if you had a homeless person, that they had a lot of problems usually. You know, there's mental health problems, there's substance abuse problems. If you want them to get a job, they need training. And so often the way that they structured the interventions was you had to tick these boxes one at a time. You know, first, let's get them into substance abuse treatment and then mental health, and then we'll work on a resume, and then maybe someday we can get that homeless person into housing. What they did in Rockford was they flipped that on its head and they said, you know, the presenting problem of someone that's on the street is that there's someone without a home. So why don't we start there? Why don't we get them into a home? And then we can work on these other problems subsequent to that. So that was part one of the story. Part two was, and this is true of of lots of social issues that are complex, like homelessness, is there are lots of people who have some piece of the puzzle when it comes to homelessness. And yet, it's so atomized, it's so fragmented that they never really align their efforts. Well, that changed in Rockford. They started to bring all these people together to collaborate around the same table, regular meetings. But even that wasn't sufficient because Larry Morrissey told me they had gotten these people together before in the past, but in general, it was to discuss homelessness. And he said very quickly, these meetings would kind of degenerate into bitch sessions, as he said. And so that was where the third part of the story was so critical And that was they began to take a real-time census of all the homeless people in the community. I mean, they knew every last homeless person by name. They had them in a Google Doc. And so for the first time when they convened this group, you know, firemen and and health workers and homeless shelter uh, employees and on and on, what they were talking about were specific human beings. And when they got that close, that proximate to the problem, and they started to understand it in all of its dimensions, it made it easier for them to make progress. It became more tangible all of a sudden. It wasn't about, you know, unlocking the issue of homelessness. It was about how do we get Lawrence out from under the bridge into his own housing unit? And that became the engine of progress, and that's what led to that that remarkable turnaround where 10 months later... They, uh, they become the first city in the U.S. to accomplish that. And I think what's so important about that story is it teaches us some things outside of the world of homelessness. I think maybe the most important thing it teaches us that I saw again and again in my research was that, that macro successes in terms of preventing problems often start with micro work and observation, you know, that, that we might think in order to make a difference for hundreds or thousands or millions of people, we've got to start at this really broad level. But so often what I saw that, that yielded success was to go literally one person, one name at a time, and that's what trained people how to understand the systems they were a part of, what kind of interventions might be successful in turning things around, and how to achieve better results uh, going forward. 
Let's talk about our current moment because your book talks about this. It didn't know that there'd be a coronavirus or any viral pandemic, but it could have. Um, you talk about the huge calamity that um, people drag their feet on and sometimes don't even recognize was a prevented or preventable calamity. And the main example you use is Y2K. So you must have been thinking about that example so much within the last few months. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, probably everybody listening has heard now of this paradox of prevention, which is that the better a job we do preventing something bad, the less evidence there is that it ever needed preventing. And, and Y2K is just a, a perfect example of that where, you know, uh, uh, older listeners will remember the panic you know, 1998, 1999, as we got close to the turn of the millennium, and is this going to be the collapse of civilizations? And are, are, is the power grid going to go down? Is, is, is the banking system going to get screwed up? And so this guy named John Koskinen becomes uh, the Y2K czar. Clinton asked him to take the role, and he, he accepts. And, and Koskinen is a fascinating guy. So his backstory is he worked turning around the largest failed life insurance company, uh, in business history. That was mutual benefit. He worked at the OMB during the two government shutdowns uh, engineered by Newt Gingrich uh, during the Clinton administration. Later, he ran the IRS. So this is a guy used to bad jobs. In fact, he, uh, he joked with me that his memoir should be called, Why'd You Take That Job? And so he gets this Y2K czar job, and he knows right away it's a no-win because if he succeeds and, and nothing happens, then people are going to say, well, God, what was all that fuss about? That was a whole bunch of nothing. And if it doesn't work and, you know, traffic lights aren't working and you can't get money from your bank, people are going to say, what's the name of the guy that was in charge of this effort? So he, um, he's, he's working with a small team with 18 months to go in, in the vastness of the federal government. I mean, his team has no ability to directly intervene. It's not like he can hire a, a parachute team of coders to come in and fix the problem. All he can really do is convene and organize the work. And so he starts getting you know, government agencies to reach out to their private sector collaborators, like the Department of Transportation is working with trucking companies and shipping companies and airlines. And they're trying to organize all this work. And they put in just a tremendous amount of effort with their uh, backs against the wall, the clock ticking down toward the millennium. And what happens is basically nothing. You know, the, the, the clock ticks over to January 1st, 2000, and there are a couple of hiccups here and there. You know, we lost track of a satellite for a while, and, and there are some weird blips in the, the Japanese nuclear infrastructure, but, but basically no panic moments the whole day. The banks still work, the traffic lights still work, the energy grid still works. And immediately people start saying, well, we got conned, <laughs> right? We, we've been worried about this thing for years and the media's been hyping this. And, uh, and, and that was just a scam. And, uh, and we're already starting to hear those very same arguments, right? That, that we've gone through this period of social distancing and really clamp down on social interactions. And as a result, hospitals have not been overwhelmed. Uh, we, we are not on track to have a couple of million deaths as, as was once forecast. And already you start to hear the voices saying, we've been scammed, right? We, we, are all, we killed the economy for nothing. Uh, and and this, is, this is in many ways the curse of prevention is it's kind of a, a glorious field of work. 
Here's my question, though. So you've identified a problem. It's a problem of how we conceive of things. But, you know, you've written whole books about the power of uh, labeling and branding and telling details. So what's the upstream solution to that problem? The problem is we define a hero as the person who intervenes in a noticeable way. We don't identify as a hero the person who prevents the necessity of intervention? What's the upstream solution? Or where should we start looking for the solution? I think, I mean, I'm a guy who's, uh, I always think about what's the most tangible response. And so this is going to sound small, but I think it's small, but but functional. And I think the change has to happen inside us. Uh, we have to start becoming more observant about this tension between saving the day and keeping the day from needing to be saved. And I think that happens in organizations as much as it happens, you know, in society as a whole in these pandemic situations and emergency response situations. Like, we've all got some colleague at work who, you know, actually seems to relish the, you know, stay up all night to finish the project kind of yes, mad cycle. Yes, cre cre creating fires so they could put them out. Right? Exactly right. And so I heard from to get tangible on your question, I heard from a reader who had a really clever solution, which is they said they had started to detect this kind of uh, start the fire to put out the fire tendency. And they said, you know, it's partly a function of what we're rewarding and praising in organizations. I mean, if there's one truism of human nature, it's you get more of what you reward, right? And so they said, how can we start rewarding um, prevention? And so they come up with this cheesy... Uh, Smokey, uh, Smokey the Bear Award, you know, the, the guy who wants to prevent forest fires. And they start giving it out to people who prevent something bad from happening. And just that little shift in recognition has power because it's, it's symbolizing like a new regime. It's like we're going to stop rewarding the, the putting out the fires. We're going to start rewarding the preventing them from ever breaking out. And I think that's what's got to happen a million times at the micro level to really affect a big societal shift is, is we've got to basically do a culture change program. And the only thing that gives me hope here, because look, the, the score is about 99 to 1 in favor of downstream heroes right now. I, I don't want to I don't want to be overly optimistic, but what gives me hope is we're just starting to get in the game when it comes to upstream work. I mean, for, for thousands of years, humanity had to deal with today's problems. There was no bandwidth. There were no resources. There was no wherewithal to worry about tomorrow's problems, much less next year's problems. And so it's only in recent human history that we, we kind of have the ability to even worry about what may or may not come tomorrow or next month or next year. And so I think a lot of the, um, the systems, both incentive systems and, and information systems and also psychological systems in terms of what we honor and what we reward are in their incubation period. You know, we're, we're in the first inning of, of upstream work. Upstream is the name of the book, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen. The author is and was Dan Heath. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And now the spiel. There are a lot of places where you can get a fact check on the Trump administration, like Peter Navarro went on ABC's This Week This Week and George Stephanopoulos, Caught him in a fibberuski.
Yeah, well, Joe Biden's got 40 years of sucking up to the Chinese, including eight years as vice president. We all know about the, the billion dollars that his son took from the Chinese. Uh, that's not a, that's just not factual, State. sir. That is not a fact. He did not take a billion dollars from the Chinese. Went into that hedge fund. It may be a thing you made up. Moving on. Yeah, I like how he's just throwing it out there. Because, you know, every once in a while, a blitzer type or a bear type won't even pull you back in. So, you know, it's worth it to take the risk. Like they say, you miss all the smears you don't attempt. But I'm not actually talking about black and white assessments of fact versus fiction. I'm not even talking about framings or shadings that you can assign any number of Pinocchios to. Because even the prominently proboscist puppet would know that there is much else out there that has a whiff of mendacity about it. But what I'm really speaking of is a certain characterization that the White House has been trotting out over the past few days. First, this is White House spokesperson Kelly McEnany. Greatest mobilization of the private sector since World War II. This was also repeated a couple of times by the counter-puncher-in-chief himself. In short, the American people have launched the greatest mobilization of our society since World War II. Okay, but is it true? And what does it even mean? Well, we know what the mobilization is this time. They say we're going to need maybe a billion gloves over a 100-day period and many more PPEs and especially ventilators. To this end, the president did actually invoke, not just threatened to invoke, the Defense Production Act. And Ford and GE are building 30,000 ventilators at a cost of about half a billion dollars. Okay, that's big. And of course, people are changing what they do. But is it the biggest mobilization since World War II? Well, partly because there's no exact definition of mobilization, it's hard to subject this claim to a fact check. But by any reasonable standard, no, it's not the biggest mobilization. In fact, right after World War II was the Korean War. And I started looking up some facts about all the personnel and materiel and logistics that were deployed to fight the Korean War. It makes the PPE and ventilators, though necessary, it makes them seem like two or three scraps of scrap metal. I mean, speaking of scrap metal, there was a shortage of pig iron in the country around 1950. And 500 scrap metal mobilization committees formed, which identified 36 million tons of scrap from farms and automobile junkyards. Despite having the highest rate of production for steel in the nation's history, there was no excess capacity when the Korean War began. Civilian demands for steel exceeded peacetime records. So just in terms of scrap metal, the production is almost unfathomable because they needed it for civilian goods and automobiles, but also rail lines, rail cars, cargo vessels. They needed to carry it. Facilities needed to produce it, and they had to increase the capacity. I began reading different historical reports and records, and I was just staggered by the mobilization that occurred around the Korean War. For instance, back then, the Petroleum Administration for Defense estimated that in 1951, the first full year of the war, the domestic refining capability needed to be raised 8 million barrels per day. That expansion would in turn require lots of steel, by the way. The government objective was to open 43,000 new domestic wells during 1951. So where were we in defense expenditures 
around the Korean War? Well, at the peak of World War II, defense expenditures amounted to 45% of the gross national product. But then when World War II ended, there was the mass belief that we wouldn't be fighting for a while. So the number of troops went away. The number of armaments went away. The number of planes and tanks and boats went away. In April 1951, defense expenditures amounted to 8% of the gross national product. Then it almost doubled to 15% by the end of 1951. Then it exceeded back to 20%. Industrial production rose by 12% in the first year of the Korean War. So what's going on now is obviously and sadly industrial production is declining. We're talking about total overall industrial production for civilian and wartime rising 12%. The gross national product rose by 9% because of mobilization. I found little snippets of, for instance, how many total vehicles were used? I don't know. But I did find a reference to uh, the United States used to rebuild vehicles in Japan to ship them to Korea. 26,000 general purpose vehicles, 787 tanks, 1,900 other combat vehicles. The army was employing 30,000 Japanese citizens to rebuild American vehicles. In 1951, 100,000 vehicles were repurposed and rebuilt in Japan. The 8th Army was the bulk of the military in Korea during the war, General MacArthur's 8th Army. The estimated daily requirement was 4,000 tons of supplies for the 8th Army. Petroleum, oil, lubricants, rations, ammunition. According to a book on Korean logistics, these were carried by trains, 20 to 40 cars, freight trains every day, transporting approximately 500 tons of freight every day. And we haven't even talked about people because... The initial strength of the army at the outbreak of World War I was 591,000 and mobilized to prosecute the war another 382,000. The mass mobilization around the Korean War as compared to the PPE and the ventilators is staggering. It's mind-boggling. It puts in contrast to what we're doing now. And this is not to say this isn't a horrible existential time and threat that we're going through. But to wantonly say, oh, it's the biggest since World War II? No, it simply isn't. I could go on and on. Maybe it's because, like I said, mobilization, no exact definition. Maybe it's because as a country, we're ahistoric. Maybe that we've become so used to big lies that can imperil us tomorrow. Paying attention to merely miscasting history doesn't seem so alarming. But there is something about ignoring, erasing, if you will, the very constituency that Donald Trump most often praises and honors the military that bothers me. So no, this isn't the greatest mobilization ever. At the very least, there was a gigantic mobilization that happened right on the heels of World War II, a war where over 400,000 people died. And the United States got together, got it together, worked together, and produced for a common goal. And at the time, the war was seen to be fought with actual arms and men rather than with lies and exaggeration. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST's associate producer. She finds a lot of problems aren't upstream problems or downstream problems. They're more like fetid pool of stagnant water problems. And they're kind of bubbling and frothing, it looks like. 
Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He thinks in olden days, town criers warned of gallop by Lansings. Just gallop by Lansings. Quite pernicious, not as prevalent. The gist. So you need me to grab the olive oil from the top shelf? Sure, I could do that, but realize it is the greatest mobilization since World War II. I'm sorry, what's that? Oh, this was the avocado oil, not the olive oil? No problem. I'll go get you the olive oil, but please make note, this is now the greatest mobilization since the Second World War. Things get pretty historic around my house. Oom-pru-de-pru-du-pru, and thanks for listening.